Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and I am coming to you live from across same bat station, same bat place kind of sort of thing <laughs> lately. And I'm really excited about my guest because she is the first of my guests that I am interviewing from what was a, a writer's festival called Peja. That is a festival that takes place in October here in Ghana. And I've seen it grow over the years. And I'm just so encouraged by just the fact that they are doing the work to bring writing and literary commentary and concepts to the fore for Africa. You know, it's very Pan-African, which I loved about it. And so that's where I met my guest. And so let me just get to her introduction. She is an award-winning nonfiction writer. She's a teacher and an avid traveler. She is currently a graduate student at the University of East Anglia School of Literature, Drama, and Creative Writing, studying biography and creative nonfiction. She's won the Literary Award for Narrative Nonfiction of the Tucson Festival of Books, the Stephen J. Maringoff Award for Nonfiction at the Association of Literary Scholars, Critics, and Writers, and the Archie D. and Bertha H. Walker Scholarship for Writers of Color from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. In 2015, she was nominated for the Pushcart Prize by the Oracle Fine Arts Review, and in 2020, she was longlisted for the inaugural Toyin Palo Prize for Emerging African Writers and was published in the prize's anthology, In the Sands of Time, in 2022. In addition to being a 2019 resident at the Seventh Waves Rhineback Residency, she is a Voices of Our Nations Workshop Fellow, a Tin House Summer Workshop Alumni, and has presented at several Association of Writing and Writing Programs conferences. A contributing editor for nonfiction at Electric Literature, she is also currently published at Al Jazeera, The Globe and Mail, Catapult, The Broad Street Review, Business Insider, and Africa is a Country, among others. Michelle Alipao Chikanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm super excited for this conversation. Yay. So let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? All right, where am I from? That is always, for folks like us, a multifaceted answer. I'm from Malawi. That is where my both sides of my family are, mother and father's side. In, in Malawi, you might say that's also where my graveyard is, you know, because your life is often, it's also defined, like where you're from is like, oh, that's where, that's where our people are buried because you go back to where your people are. And that's where I go home regularly for holidays and everything. I was born in the U.S. while my parents were in school. My dad got a USAID scholarship to do graduate school in the U.S. And me and my siblings were born there. We then moved to uh, Canada. Shortly after that, when my dad couldn't get papers to stay and work in the U.S., you know how the U.S. often is about about giving about papers and residency and whatnot. So we moved to Newfoundland, Canada, where he was a professor at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And we lived there for six years until Malawi got democracy after 30 years mm. of autocracy. And we moved back to Malawi about two months after that we formally were, you know, were a democratic nation. So. So I've lived in a lot of places. Where I am local now is the United Kingdom. As you said earlier in my introduction, I am a graduate student, a master's degree student right now at the University of East Anglia, where I'm studying biography and creative nonfiction. 
I decided to uh, come here, you know, I'd been in the U.S. for 20 years and I sort of realized a lot of the events of 2020 really made me think a lot about what it is to be Black in America. And I realized that I needed to leave the U.S. in order to be able to reflect on that and do that thinking and writing accurately. I also, you know, my father passed away four years ago and, you know, Malawi is geographically closer to the UK than it is to the US. And so we're thinking about, hey, I want to spend more time writing and where's a good place to be closer to mom in Malawi without necessarily being in Malawi, which carries its own challenges. I decided on the UK, which is sort of a really interesting choice for many reasons, chief among which is that, of course, the UK was actually global, the country, I wouldn't say global power is a strong word, but country that colonized us. And so it is very interesting mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, to have arrived here. I landed here two days before Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. When oh. my parents were born, technically, they were, or at least per subjects. what's the rule, they were subjects. Yes, they were subjects at that time. My grandma was born a year before Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth was born 1926. My grandma was born 1925. Grandma is still around, still very mm. sharply opinioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, so it's really interesting to think about all these geopolitical dynamics and, you know, that have meant me being in this very specific space and time right now. Yeah. Anyway, that's a really long, yes, very, very long answer. But to answer the third part, I'm a writer. That is my profession. And so, so I have a lot of words for a lot of the things I think about. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh, nice. So let me go back to this, your, your cultural origins. And so where in Malawi are you from? Excellent question. So my father is from Dedza, which is in the central region. And my mother is from Zomba, which is in the southern region. They met when they were at uh, the Polytechnic one of the branches of the University of Malawi, which is itself in the southern region, but the Polytechnic is in Blantyre. Um, it's actually just a very short drive from where my mother still lives now. Mm-hmm. Where you are from, it's, you know, people will give the, depending on who you ask, they will say where you're from is your father's village or where you're from is your mother's village. On my national ID card, it says my mother's village, you know, and so it says that I'm from Zomba. But when you meet people on a day-to-day basis and, you know, ask where you're from, and I'll be like, oh, actually, you know, both Dedza and Zomba, you know, me too many years in the, in the U.S. trying to mm-hmm. be equivocal about both. They'll say, no, you're from your father's village, so you're from Dedza. Oh. And so, you know, it, it, it varies, you know, and on my previous passports, it has said my traditional authority, which they will list, you know, in, in, uh, in U.S. passports, they will say issuing authority, which is you know, the, the U.S. State Department or, you know, or the, the, you know, the particular office that is, you know, that, that the passport was made in. In Malawi passports, it used to say your traditional authority. And so that would be the chief of chiefs of your area. And so that would, and that was, it, back in those days, that was my dad's area. So it would be Chief Kachindamoto, who is still the, the traditional authority now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very complicated question. You know, I consider myself to be from both, mm-hmm. you know, and identification documents aside, <laughs> you know, I, I spend equivocal time in both places when I go home, obviously mainly staying with my mother, but make sure to go to my dad's village. That's where he's buried. Go to my mom's village. Obviously that's where, you know, you know, my grandmother lives with my mother now, but you know, everyone else, my cousins and everybody, they're all still there. So, you know, go see them there. Wow. So is it matrilineal or patrilineal there in terms of like 
inheritance rights or is it is it tribal by tribe that it changes? By tribe it changes, yes. Okay. So in the north, they have the Lobola system that you'll see in a lot of a lot of southern Africa where the man's side of the family will pay a bride price mm-hmm. and then the children will is basically, you know, if anything happens in case of a split up or a parental death or anything like that, the children will go to the man's side. If Lobola, if they don't complete paying Lobola, then it'll go to the mother's side. Mm. In the middle, in the middle of you know central region, southern region, um, it is generally matrilineal. Mm. Okay. Now there are certain tribes, ethnic groups within that where there might be a symbolic, you know, price play paid in heads of cattle. <laughs> You know, um, if people choose to, but more more as a like a recognition of tradition more than anything else. Sure. But it would still it might signal more that okay, although generally we are matrilineal, you know, the man has agreed to pay these, and that means that you know if anything happens, we're you know we're leaning more on the man's side to define what happens next after a after a loss or in case of decision making and whatnot. So it, it varies very much, of course, also in part because you know when when the various European powers arrived, they defined the borders themselves based on their own resource needs and not mm-hmm. on what is actually going on on the ground in terms of where these ethnic groups are actually located. Mm-hmm. So my dad's group are the Ngonis, which are an offshoot of the Zulus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Shaka Zulu had an argument with his brother in the mid-1820s. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's basically the Mfekan there, the Mfekan, something like that. And Basically, there was a split and, you know, he he basically said, okay, you guys need to take people and get out. I'm tired of you. And so, so Shakozu's <laughs> brother took his people and started migrating up north. And so they settled in various parts of South Africa. Like, you know, they settled in Swaziland. They settled in parts of Zimbabwe. And so those, those languages that you'll find in those places in Swazi and in um, like in Debele and Chiangoni, which you'll find parts of Malawi they speak, these are all mutually intelligible because these are all basically people of the same nation who migrated upwards, settled here, settled here, settled here. So Ngoni land is actually, what I might call Ngoni land, actually sits partially between Malawi and Zambia Mm. um, alongside our northern borders. And so there are various festivals over the course of the year for which if you're crossing into Zambia or if Zambians are crossing into Malawi to attend things, you don't actually need a passport or you don't need a paper passport. You just need to be wearing your tribal gear and whatnot. And and then you'll, you'll go past the border because of course, you know, these papers were really inventions of the white people. Right. You know, and how are you going to, how are you going to ask a villager, you know, to say, Oh, can you pay, whatever, tens of thousands of kwacha for this this little passport book that you only use once every so often. And that is only, that is meant meant to signify, you know, citizenship and place that sort of is- Is your own. Yeah, it's your own. It's already your own. Exactly. So- Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that conversation about the borders is a huge conversation. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not super familiar with Southern Africa, but I, I definitely yeah. know, you know, particularly here in West Africa, it's like, why Togo and Benin? You know, why yeah. all of that? Because we're all the same. Like, we speak the same language. We just have a border because the French said, oh, we're going to take this much. And then you take that. And it's kind of very ridiculous. Yeah. I learned so much actually from the other, some of the other attendees at the, at um, Peja. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when you are mostly just in your region, you think these issues are just 
yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then so they talk to other people, you know, uh, other folks I was on panels with about the various issues that they are writing about, like related to like tribes and ethnicity and these conflicts that are crossing these borders, quote unquote borders that, you know, say the French left or the British left, mm-hmm. you know, and, but because those lands that are being contested that have nothing to do with those borders that were drawn, it's really, it was really fast, both fascinating and sort of a light going on to say, oh yes, like this is a cross-continental reality. Like we are exactly, we are all struggling with this sort of like post-colonial reality, you know? Right, right, right. Interesting. Okay. So, and, and so you basically are a dual citizen. Yes. Yes. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I always ask this question of the creatives of African parents because it's always a big <laughs> question. <laughs> so, so you are, your craft is being a writer and most parents yes. would have, would have said, oh no, you're not a writer. You're a professor or you're something of another sort. Yes. So tell us like what your inspiration is and the background that allows you to call yourself a writer. You mean like what I was supposed to be first? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I came home at the end of freshman year because I went to a uh, university in the U.S. You know, uh-huh. US, you know, papers meant that was um, that was a decision that was easier. Yes. And um, I came home at the end of freshman year, and I'd had a piece published in the school newspaper a couple of months before, actually just a month before, about an unfortunate incident where it had a racial slur yelled at me on the way home from a spring fling party. And that essay had done really well. It was an op-ed piece. And I, you know, I was in a writing class at the time already and my writing professor was super supportive. And so I went home and told my father, I said, you know, I, I think I wanna I think I wanna be a writer. I think I'm gonna major in English. And he was like, You already speak English. And I was like, <laughs> right. I'm talking about literature. It's not just so you're going to go all the way to the US and you're you're gonna come back after four years after all these four years of studying and you're gonna tell people in Malawi that you studied English. That is not acceptable. This is not happening. Right. And so, um, you know, I eventually compromised with them to do international relations. Okay. And why that happened, it was, you know, that first uh, summer home in Malawi, there was, you know, not a whole lot to do. So I was reading a lot. You know, my dad was a really avid reader and he, you know, had shelves and shelves of books. And so I started reading books specifically about, it was international relations, but a lot specifically about like, Africa and Africa in relationship to the West. And I ended up choosing international relations. I said, you know, I kind of want to understand more about why we, our borders look the way they do, but I, I won't understand enough if I just do African studies. I didn't feel that way at the time. In retrospect, I probably would have. We had a very good African studies department at my university. But um, but yeah, so I decided on international relations with a minor in creative writing. Okay. And that was the compromise. Okay. I had wanted to do... Um, or not wanted to, it had always been impressed on me that I would become a doctor. Mm-hmm. In high school in Malawi, I was I was very good at math, biology, chemistry. Mm-hmm. I did my last two years of school at a small international school in Wales called United World College of the Atlantic. And the United World Colleges are a school group. There's now 20 of them. Back, you know, back in my day, there were 10 of them. But they were a school group that was basically founded with the intention of sort of really pushing this idea of like the global citizen, you know, Mm -hmm. and to say, you know, have each of these schools never have a critical mass of any one nationality, even the nationality that the school is situated in. The idea is that when you have these small numbers of everyone, you all just sort of have to 
figure out actually how to really talk to each other, how to communicate. And because you're so young, it's very emotional rather than like logical, which means that when you meet mm-hmm. again in 20, 30 years, you're at boardrooms and discussion tables and podcasts and everything. Someone can say something, you know, when people say something that's like dismissive or, or making making these prejudgments, you've had this experience growing up with people when you were kids, you know, together and say, no, that's, you're wrong about that. And it's deeply instinctive. And so I went to that school. How did you happen on that school? So you were in high school in Malawi and then you. I was in high school in Malawi and my dad, someone had connected him with this. He'd gone to some event, I believe, because I remember an event related Mm -hmm. to the school, related related to United World College. So I remember him coming home with a pamphlet book about it. He may have also just given it to me. I don't know. <laughs> in my head, I'm like, oh, I went to their bedroom and took it. He may have just been like, this is something for you to think about in four years. Because I do remember I was 12 when I first saw the pamphlet. Okay. I started that school when I was 16. Oh, okay. So it was a long run of time. Okay. And um, so I, as a, you know, as I was going through my GCSEs and whatnot, that's what we were doing at this school, GCSEs, IGCSEs. I realized that if I stayed at that school, it's going to, have to do A levels and A levels is only three subjects. And I really wasn't sure if I wanted to focus down that quickly. I also knew that I would be tracked into math, biology, chemistry. And I I think that was actually the beginnings of me being like, do I really know that I want to be a doctor? I don't know. And so this particular school had the international baccalaureate, which is six subjects, three higher levels that are that are basically the same as A-levels and three standard levels for which you spend half that study time, as well as um, a service component, a creativity component, and an activity component. And they sort of basically push, you know, the idea that by the time you graduate, there should be lots of things that comprise who you are as a learner and person, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a, I, I truly think it's a life-changing experience, and I will, you know, br- gladly proselytize to anybody <laughs> about yeah. it. Yeah. I think it's just so great for young people to go through that. Um, most of the schools are fully scholarship supported because mm-hmm. they want to be sure that everyone has the opportunity to attend regardless of funding. And they do actually really good work with their fundraising and everything because, of course, it's a really good mission in a very complicated world as, as ours is now. But yeah, so I went to I went to that school and then I did less well in math and science. Mm, okay. And I think that was the beginning of me realizing that I wasn't particularly interested in the math and science track. So in it, once at university, I really didn't do well in my chemistry class in particular. And that was the end of me pretending that I was going to be able to simply like slide on up to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? so, so I did international relations and minored in creative writing. And then I graduated and moved to New York City because I think that's where I thought I had to live to be a writer. Okay. You know, it's like, I'll be a, be a starving writer in New York. And I was just, you know, 24 years old in New York, right? Like, like working, working a lot, not making a whole lot of money, going out way too much and not doing a whole lot of writing. It was only about the year I turned 25 when, you know, around that mid twenties time when everybody starts thinking about, where, what is my direction actually going to be? Like people start thinking about graduate school. That's when the first in our peer set began to get engaged, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. to, you know, other folks began to pair up in serious ways. Like you would, you know, I can see now in retrospect, people started relationships in that period of time that are now the people that they are, you know, married and have children with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was this time when everybody was beginning to shift their lives into the next year. 
And I realized that if I was going to take writing seriously, I needed to live in a city that was cheaper than <laughs> cheaper than New York City mm-hmm. and that didn't have as many distractions so I could actually focus on writing. And so I actually moved back to Philadelphia. That is where I did my undergraduate years. I also had it in mind, which I then did do, that I wanted to work at a university because they really are great environments for supporting the work like writing work you know, access to libraries, free classes, you know, journal access, which is huge, you know, being able to do any research you need to without, you know, needing to be like to pay for it or be authenticated by anything. And so I ended up then working back at my undergraduate institution. And I was, I was there for 10 years. I mean, I, that is where, you know, until I left uh, two months ago to then. Oh, wow. It's cool. Yeah, graduate school here in the UK. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. So you were there for ten years. So, uh, so there was something yeah. that kept you involved and interested in in yeah. that work what you were doing. So, tell us about what that what that work was like and and being back. You know, I, it's interesting. Like I, you know, how in you know, I was talking about like about age, you know, mid twenties is when people's life directions began to sort of meaningfully shift. I think it's also when life started to happen. Full stop. I remember like the year that I started at Penn, again, as an employee now in 2012, that is when some of my closest friends had their first babies. That is when some of my, some other friends started, had lost parents, you know, that was the beginning of, that was almost like phase one of the, 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 the age of parent loss, where it is like heart attacks and cancers and stuff. And that was all around that time. I worked in the admissions office for three years, not on the reading side, but in the application support side. So like talking to parents and talking to students and, you know, writing, you know, thoughtfully composed emails to disappointed constituents, we would say, but parents, Mm -hmm. students, counselors, et cetera, being a part of the welcome events, you know, like on-campus welcome events and whatnot. I did that for three years. And then I moved over to uh, the, you know, I worked at the University of Pennsylvania. So I worked at the Penn Alumni Interview Program and I was there for seven years. And that was not my intention. Um, and I actually told them this at my goodbye party. They threw a wonderful goodbye party for me with like British flags and everything every, everywhere and like <laughs> British beer and whatnot. I had planned to be there for another few years. And then, you know, I'd always been thinking about graduate school, you know, graduate school like as a vehicle for continuing to develop my writing. I joined the interview program in 15 and my father got his terminal diagnosis in 2016. Mm. And so suddenly being at the job was no longer just about the job itself, but was also about life stability. Mm -hmm. Malawi at the time only had two oncologists for the whole country. They had one medical oncologist and one surgical oncologist. Mm. And so for dad's advanced cancer, he had colon cancer, they were not able to treat it. Um, it was basically sort of like a, you know, good luck to you. And right. so, um, but he had a very good friend, you know, has a very good friend who lives in California and who spends half his time, half his year in Malawi and half his time, half his year in California, basically this, the spread of that. He works in the global health uh, faculty at uh, his university. And so basically found him a spot in the cancer center associated with that university's medical system. Okay. And so my parents actually relocated to California in early 2017. So suddenly me making sure to stay at my job in the U.S. was important, was suddenly about most important, right? you know, and even though I had sort of, I'll be honest, like recriminated myself somewhat for maybe not 
you know, maybe not leaving Penn sooner, maybe not jumping into graduate school sooner, suddenly being in the U.S., like, what was the reason that I was able to honestly have some really wonderful quality time for what it was in those last two years with dad, you know, mm-hmm. because he was, he was right there in the U.S. My brother and sister live in Canada, and so we were actually able to spend a lot of time with them. We were reflecting that paradoxically we spent more time together in those last two years than we had done cumulatively in the previous however many years, you know, because we're also spread out all over the world. But it was just a really valuable time. And my job were just wonderful. You know, they were, my boss especially really understood the importance of family time and of you being doing enough of the job where you don't feel like you are getting away with murder, you know, mm-hmm. but like not pressurizing yourself to do so much that you are taking away from time that you will never get back. You know, I mean, you know, my father died. You're, never, you're not going to be able to get that back if you're like, oh, I got to finish this one last Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, and there were more than one. It was my boss himself who actually was the one who was like, just go, like, go visit your parents. I will, me and the team will cover this event. You do not need to be there. And I'd be like, I feel bad for canceling him. Be like, stop it. Like, just, you will, you'll understand later. And, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, yeah. And so I was at, you know, that was 2017, 2018. Dad passed in October 2018. I was in and out of the office for the better part of of about six months. I took FMLA. I think that's the Family Medical Leave Act, mm-hmm. which allows for, you know, either, you know, three straight months off or up to 12 weeks off within a six month period. Mm-hmm. And because my time off was unpredictable, I took the 12 weeks up to 12 weeks over a six month period. And so I was basically like in and out of the office, depending on for dad's final few weeks. And then, you know, again, very grateful for a flexible office because African funerals are very involving. Right. And, and so, I was going to say, you had to travel back, yeah, and organize. Yeah. Yeah. You tra- exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you see these you know, a lot of jobs have, oh, three days bereavement leave and you're like, for three days. For it's like, who has three days? Right. Which, yeah. Which, which, which African village is it just three days? I was like, I'm bringing home clothes for a month of grieving. What are you talking about? You know, mm-hmm. and so my boss, again, boss and officer, wonderful understanding, you know, and, you know, when you talk about real flexibility, he was like, listen, like, if you have days at back in Malawi where you just need to check out for a while, like, just like sign into the yeah the system and like yeah sign it and do some work right and yeah. count that as count that as a work day and I will approve it you know because sure. you know, sometimes he'd been through a death in the family the previous year of his wife's father mm-hmm. and so knew intimately that you know when you are so highly involved like sometimes you just you just need a minute yeah and in big complex families. <laughs> You know, sometimes you need to have a, a good reason for that minute. Right. Like saying, listen, I gotta work. I'm going to the next room. I got to work. Yeah. I Please do not disturb me from, you know, between 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. or whatever it is for the time difference. I think I was like 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. or something like that. And so I basically up until up until like the mid-March, I was in and out of the office, you know, because then I went to Malawi, came back, went to California to finish packing up dad's apartment, mom and dad's apartment, came back to the U.S., then had to go back to Malawi again for the, or came back to Philadelphia, then had to go back to Malawi again for the will reading and everything to be present for that because I didn't want it to just be my mother there. Sure, yeah. For complicated 
cultural yeah. reason. Like I am his blood and she isn't necessarily. And so my dad's family turned out to be wonderful, but I, you know, you still sort of have the imprint of the memories of what happened to other friends of yours mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over the years. And so it was just like, ah, eh, let me just, as long as my boss is okay with this. And he was, he was really genuine. Like he's like, no, you go, you go handle that. I, you know, I went back and it could have been in me and any, any one of my siblings, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm the firstborn and I did have the most flexibility at the time. You sure. know? Um, my brother was in law school. My sister had just started, I believe she just started a new job. So, you know, it was just, it was easier if, if I went back. So, um, so yeah, so that we, now we're in 2019 and I did, but I had the same idea that it feels like most of the world did. It was like, okay, 2020, new decade. We're going to start this job. I was like, you know, I had my year of, you know, they recommend that you spend a year, like in the immediate aftermath of a big loss, you don't change anything for a year. Right. So I was like, okay, like we're, you know, that gets me through to October, 2019. And you know what, let's just give ourselves the extra grace period, get to December, went home to Malawi, like, you know, had Christmas with mom and the family and get back to the U.S. in January 2020, like, right, this is the year, I'm going to change up my life. I think maybe I might, you know, finally take a vacation. Maybe I might think about buying a house. <laughs> and then March 2020 happened. <laughs> right. That's what happened with all. And so, and so basically then I ended up, again, the stability of this particular job meant that suddenly changing jobs, watching so many people lose their jobs yeah. made me very fearful about like, eh, let me not let me not quit a job in the middle of this. Right. And so basically, basically stayed at that job until it be, you know, pretty much it was right after I got my vaccine in the spring of 2021 that I began thinking about, okay, Next. I will be nine years at Penn now. Let me really, let me really get my life moving. And that's actually when I began, opened up my application for, for this program. Okay. And like began thinking about the okay. getting together my references and things like that. Okay. And then applied that fall. And now I'm here the following fall. Nice. So you kind of answered the why, the where of, you know, how you came to living, working and playing where you currently are. But, But how did you, but how did you choose that program? And I, and I also want to ask a little bit more about in that time when you were at Penn, what was your writing doing? You know, you had a job and yeah. you didn't have a full mm-hmm. time, but, but what was your writing doing? And then how that segued into the program that you identified in being where you are now. Yeah. So yeah, that was, my writing actually really, I would say that is something I'm actually really proud of myself for mm-hmm. in that like my writing did largely what I intended for it to do by moving to Philadelphia. I don't think in the way that I imagined it, you know, I think I imagined I would, I, I didn't think I'd be in Philly for, you know, like a little over you know, at Penn for 10 years in Philly for a little over 11. Mm-hmm. But I started going to summer workshops in uh, the spring of the summer of 2013. And I, my very first workshop piece that I submitted for that first workshop is the, is the Jumers, Juniper Summer Writing Institute at the uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Mm-hmm. And the piece I submitted there is the piece that ended up winning me my first writing prize. Um, and so I, I like to believe that in my first writing prize, I won about six months after that. And I, I sort of like to believe that the universe gives you signs. And I don't, I don't think this is fully my idea. I feel like I read it somewhere where like when you're on your path, like the universe will sort of give you these initial bursts of success Absolutely. to like bring you in to be like, okay, you're, you know, this is right. Because that was fairly, you know, 
like for that to happen in rapid succession, right? Submit that essay to at Juniper for workshopping, then submit it for that writing prize and and to then win it. You know, won my second writing prize the the year after that. And this is where, you know, when I talked about being based at Penn and like the real things that universities can do for you, that particular essay, um, which I really do reflect on as a really quite a magnificent creative experience. It was supposed to be the term paper, not supposed to be, it was the term paper for a class I was taking on the Song of Songs in translation. And I was interested in learning about, you know, I'd grown up, my parents are Seventh-day Adventists and I'd grown up pretty heavily in, in the church and, and was interested in questions of, of literary translation. You know, what, do, what are we saying in this language versus the choice to say this thing in this language and in this language, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a term paper, a 20-page term paper due in December. And I had already talked to my professor about my plan for it. And then it was a very big plan. I basically was going to weave in three strands of discussion, you know, talking about the Song of Songs and translation, talking about interweaving it with a narrative strand where I'm talking about the, you know, this, you know, a, a boy I had a crush on or sort of was in love with and in school at the same time that I was very religious. And in in my my young self having this debate of, you know, love of man versus love of God and like, am I sinning and everything like that. And so I was interweaving this narrative strand in order to highlight the larger discussions that have happened about the Song of Songs over literally like centuries, which is like, why is this book in the Bible anyway? I mean, it's pretty salacious, you know, it's short, but salacious. And, you know, what is it talking about? And what does it mean? Like, is it, why do we use the avenue of like clearly human love to be talking about, you know, you know, spiritual love? This is a very big project. And I was like, I was like, you know, what? I don't know if I can turn this in on time. And this professor, eternal credit to him, and really like the highest expression of what learning really should be about within academia rather than like deadlines and whatnot. He said, I'm gonna give you an incomplete, which means you have until the end of next term to submit this because I actually want to see you land this. I wanna give you the time to do this right. And to my credit, I kept to that. And I just, I spent the next three months, I mean, I was, I'd stay at my office late. I was like, literally like copy pasting things. I'd print out poetry and like, cause I used, mm. I interspersed Bible verse with, with secular poetry and would place them up against each other in this piece to also show that they're kind of doing the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, reaching those like depths of feeling to, to help humans understand like what it is to, to have this kind of love. And I spent three months and I, the paper, of course, was well over, it was well over 20 pages, probably close to like, I think it was 27, 28 pages. And, but he was thrilled with it. And of course, my sister Billy, like, shut up about that, but I got an A, of course I got an A. But more importantly, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> more importantly, it was such a powerful creative experience. Right. I, I just felt like I, I, I really got at the, at the depths of A, of what I was trying to show and B, just it felt like I had truly pushed myself to, in that for, format of an essay, really to the to the heights of what I could have done with that. And I, I would not reach that place again for like six years, you know, although oh. like I created a lot in that time. Um, life got busy and of course then, you know, dad got sick and whatnot. And like, I, it wasn't really until the pandemic lockdowns when I was at home for mm -hmm. long stretches of time where I wrote work 
that was that being approximated in process and thought what that first piece was. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and so, uh, but that was like Penn supported, right? Like, I mean, not, not directly. It's not like Penn was like, oh good, we're supporting you for that. It was that I was able to take a class and get tuition reimbursement, so take a class for free and be able to go on that intellectual endeavor. And, you know, I did a lot of my work like at my office desks because like I had a two screen setup and that's just easier in terms of when you're, mm-hmm. when you're doing big complex work like that to have, be able to swipe it one side to the other. And then I took, I studied German for a couple of years after that. Mm. It was interesting, you know, cause that's the other half of English, right? I'd done French in school and I'd done Spanish at that school in Wales, but it was interesting now to study the other half of English mm. um, by taking German. And I studied that for, uh, for two years. Um, I am way less <laughs> fluent at it than I should be after that long study, but okay. And I took a class on the Odyssey, the hero's quest, mm. um, because if you're writing on this side of the world in the West, like the Odyssey is considered like as sort of like the foundational, the foundational narrative, right? It is, it is, you know, if you want to understand the origins of like this particular type of like narrative storytelling in the West, like written storytelling, whatever, like it's the Odyssey. And I'd never studied it. Mm. I never took it in college. I never, I wasn't, it wasn't one of those books that was there in high school. Um, And of course this class wasn't just the Odyssey. It was, is the Aeneid, it was, yeah. you know, then all these other classics, Socrates, yeah, yeah, you know, um, Plato's, Plato's Symposium, whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. But it sort of wanted to give myself like, okay, if I'm developing this writing career here, this is a lot of, this is the jump off point for which a lot of the literary world here understands narrative. So I need to study that. And then actually the very last class I took, and it was for three years, I was taking Chichewa, which is my home language in Malawi. It turns mm. out that Penn really tries has, you know, tried as best as it can to maintain a very well-developed languages program. And so it means that they, they take pride in teaching lots of languages from all over, even ones like Chichewa, which relatively speaking, you know, with respect to our population is not that widely spoken. I took that and started taking that in the fall of 2019. Mm-hmm. It was almost a year after dad had died. And basically what had happened was that at dad's funeral, on the last day of the funeral, there is a, a meeting called Pusesa, and it literally means sweeping. It's the family business one, basically. And at funerals where if it's a young parent uh, or if it was young parents, et cetera, and there are young children you know, that's the meeting where you talk about, okay, who's paying school fees for who, who, you know, which, you know, uncle, auntie, whatever might be able to take them in or might be able to at least send monetary support to support maybe a parent who's still living, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of thing. There might be some discussion of property if there was property worth there to be discussing and if it's within, you know, the appropriate confines of the law. <laughs> but of course, you know, me and my brother and sister were all in our 30s. And so that meeting, Kusesa, which is still ritually important, is more generally like, Let's t- let's set the framework for how we're going to for our intentions moving forward as a family. Mm. With my dad not being there, and you know he was the firstborn son, mm. secondborn child, firstborn son, and so he had been the head of the family in many ways. And so our intentions for how we're going to make sh- make sure to maintain family cohesiveness. And so everybody speaks like the various, you know, dads, the the chief at dad's village, the chief at mom's village, you know, various uncles of mine, and everything like that. You know, more tend to be more men than women speaking. But I wanted to be sure to speak. 
but I didn't speak very good Chichewa. I grew up in Canada and my parents, mm. you know, a lot of African Im- immigrants. I noticed this when I went to Penn for undergrad. A lot of African Im- immigrants did not teach their kids the language when they moved over yeah. to whichever Western country they were. But, you know, it was sort of like, you know, we're going to leave that behind now. Right. You know, my parents, for them, they said, we didn't want to teach it to you because we didn't want your English to be impacted. You know, yeah. there weren't you you were already the only black kids in school. We didn't want we didn't want you to be further further estranged from from the experience of the rest of your peers. Mm-hmm. But it meant that even though I can hear Chichewa very well, when we moved back to Malawi, I was going to English speaking schools. I was I was missing Canada terribly, and so I think emotionally I was like, I'm never learning this. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, going. Yeah. When I grow up, I'm going to Canada and the U.S. Yeah. I'm never looking back. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> I, I was really stubborn about that and didn't because you know, ten years old is plenty old old enough to you know, learn the language and I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I joked later, you know, so I, I, I did speak at Kusesa, but I had to have one of my cousins translate for me. Okay. You know, sure. Um, to make sure. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because most of the people, the only people, if I was speaking in English, the only people who were going to understand were like my, yeah. you know, my uncles and like some uncles and cousins on my dad's side. I mean, most of them on my dad's side, but everybody else from the rest of the village. No. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and a lot of people from my mom's village, no. That, and so I, to be understood, I asked one of my cousins to, actually the firstborn son of the, the his late mother who, who gave me my middle name, Ali Pao. Um, and so we're, you know, we're, our, you know, we're very close and everything. He had to speak for me. And I think I came back to the U.S. being like, I'm tired of being the mute cousin at funerals. Right. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and so when I saw that, uh, you know, Penn had Chichewa classes and someone had told me about that before, I signed up. Okay. And it was actually just me and the professor. You know, um, of course, Malawi is so small that the professor actually is the older cousin of one of my friends from school. (laughs) 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 I was like, I promise I'm not expecting anything nepotistic. I'm going to work hard. (laughs) I worked too hard. She was like, you know, you're brilliant. You can dial it back. I was like, yeah, but I want I want to I want you to know that I'm not taking Sure. I'm not doing this Malawian thing. I'm just like, listen, hey, I just show up to class. You give me A's, pen pays you money. Everybody's happy. <laughs> like, right. I, I didn't want to do that. Right. So I did yeah. that for three years, but um, okay. it actually worked. I mean, my grand, my, my my grandma actually has noted that my kid oh, is much better. Nice. Um, and she, like that, I that she's noted a change in my confidence in speaking with people. Yeah. This also means, of course, that I can no longer avoid her lectures. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. She'll talk to you and expect you to really listen. (laughs) Listen and understand and respond. Right. Yeah. All of that. So, but um, that's the very last class I took at Penn, and uh, then uh, I finished that class, the third year of that class, in May of 2022, and of course by. You're on your way. On my way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So this is a good segue into my local speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is Mm -hmm. a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as a local speak. So having recently moved to the UK, I suppose I would say that the local, I'll give two answers for this. In Philadelphia, and my Philadelphia friends are going to laugh, the word that means the most is uh, John, and it is spelled J-A-W-N, and it, it means basically 
it's almost like it can be, you know, like in, in that Mad Libs game, there was a person, place, or thing. And so John can be a person. John can be a thing. It's not always a place like this John, you know, but like, but definitely a thing like, like this John, you know, or that John meaning that person. And so it, I think I like the varying context in which John can be used. I was in London in June of 2022. And I was with a friend who I had been at university with, and we were walking around in Bloomsbury and down, you know, central London. And we turned the corner and we saw, and we saw, and we were like, no way. And we saw graffitied onto the wall of this place. It was Jones. <laughs> I actually put this on my, <laughs> on my uh, Instagram and I captioned it. I said, even all the way in London, the streets are calling me home. <laughs> it was like, uh, <laughs> I have no idea. I was like, there's some Philadelphian who got drunk and just wrote John on this wall. And so that's, I think that's my like Philadelphia local speak, you know, I, I, okay. which I don't, I did not use regularly, but I was successfully, I think, managed to deploy it to comedic effect from time to time. In the UK, there's a word, I mean, not a word, I mean, it's the word brilliant, but it's the way that, that British people mm. that I, loved for years, you know, and I think I heard mm-hmm. someone use it in, in a store the other day or in class. And it was, it was like a, not quite a light bulb moment coming on, but it was the way they said it. It was like, oh, I'm home, which, which doesn't make any, sort of quite doesn't make any sense. But, but I suppose for, you know, the fact that I've, you know, crossed through various intersections over the course of my life, it also felt like it made sense. You know, they said, oh, brilliant, whatever it is. And then and then it was just, oh, okay. I recognize where I am now. I, I recognize it and I feel recognized. Brilliant is a, you know, it's not in American English, you wouldn't necessarily, it's an intense word in American English, mm-hmm. right? Like if you say something is, oh my God, that's brilliant. It's really like, that's brilliant. And so it, it's so intense that you wouldn't necessarily use it in day to day. Day to day. In the UK, you know, be like, oh, you know, all right, so we're meeting next week for, you know, at, at XYZ Pub. Oh, brilliant. And yeah. maybe it's just the casualness of it or something. That yeah. Perhaps. Um, but also the genuine enthusiasm wrapped into that int- intimacy. I don't know. Maybe I'm doing too much. I'm a writer. So, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, local speak. That is something that is, I don't know, I value a lot. It makes me feel like I'm in a place that I recognize. Yeah. Okay, nice. Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Michelle Chikaonda. Be sure to come back next week when we learn more about Michelle's travels and she offers some great travel hacks for your local travels as well. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify. You get the idea wherever you get your podcasts. Please do like, share, subscribe, tell a friend. It helps people find good content online. And be sure to check out the show notes. They're going to be very rich this week and next. So until next time, bye for now.